Hi there. My name is Brandon Boat, and you are listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This episode comes from a live show we did on April 1st, 2019, where we talked about the legalization of recreational marijuana in Minnesota. We spoke with two guests on the show. The first was Melissa Franzen, who is the senator from District 49B and one of the co-sponsors of a bill to make it legal to possess, grow, and purchase marijuana in Minnesota. Our other guest was Laley Fadahi, who is the principal and owner of Apparatus, a public policy and affairs practice. She is also the co-founder of Minnesotans for Responsible Marijuana Regulation. Although the bill in the legislature was voted down, we talked to them about the process, public perception in Minnesota, and why house parties might be the future to legalization. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. This is delightful. Um, so we have a lot to talk about, and I should say uh, I'm, I have some questions to get the show started. In the second half of the show, we open it up for you all to ask questions of our guests. But uh, I kind of wanted to start with this, which is uh, this is an issue. I feel we've been doing the theater of public policy for you know eight years now. This is a seemingly a topic we could have done at any time, and we haven't because it never really seemed like it always seemed like something like you would do sort of like a, we should, oh, wouldn't flying cars be cool kind of show but now all of a sudden it seems like it's a thing where, oh no, people are really talking about like this could happen and it's, so I'm wondering what changed or why now seems like a particularly poignant moment for this conversation Do you want to know the real story? I do, no, I please make something up, <laughs> yes, of course I want to know I was bored in the interim, and I was reading, I think it was Newsweek or Time, and I just read it, it just realized that this thing is going to hit us, and it's going to happen, and we haven't talked about it in the legislature, and there was a few bills introduced before this last interim, um, but they were just modeled after Colorado, so um, for me, it was more about being curious and trying to find a framework that would work for Minnesota, and um, put together a bill, and um, there's many other bills, but ours got a hearing, because we got... Uh, Republican co-author who happens to be a doctor and we were able to get a hearing even though the bill died but that's kind of how it got there and I want to talk about uh, the politics of it but I just have to follow up on this for a second does this happen a lot where you're just like flipping through like Time Magazine and you're just like wow that would be a fun piece of legislation <laughs> like what else I'm, I'm worried about I'm worried to ask what else do you read like you just sort of <laughs> I don't read a lot lately. I just read a lot of bills, but it just, um, I literally bought this magazine off um, Jerry's Food in a Dina and um, <laughs> took it on vacation and, and it took me a while to read it. I have two little kids, so I don't have a lot of free time to read. And it just struck me. And I'm also a Humphrey alum. Um, policy has always been something I'm interested in. And I thought we should start talking about the policy behind legalization. Yeah. I, we were talking a little behind this be backstage before we got started. So the organization of which you are the campaign manager, you only got started in December. The, that's that's young. That's brief. So yep. why then? Why? <laughs> you know, I think there's been a lot of work that has been done in the advocacy space in Minnesota around legalization, especially in the areas of of medical cannabis. There's been a lot of work that has been done in the social justice, criminal justice space. But I think uh, what we saw over the last election cycle was a real popular mandate from Minnesotans that they want to talk about marijuana legalization. We had a governor that was elected running 
with marijuana legalization as a, a key issue that he addressed up front. We have had, uh, as well as many other statewide candidates that spoke on this issue. We've got mayors in both Minneapolis and St. Paul, and we see in other cities that are supportive of this issue. We're seeing resolutions pop up. So uh, I think the issue has become ripe, and we really formed because we saw that this is not an issue that Minnesotans want to wait on. They want to have discussions on it, whether they're certain about it or whether their mind still hasn't been made up. Uh, they want to have the discussions. That's so, I, it's just, <clears throat> of all the stereotypes of Minnesotans, like the stereotype, like, yeah, they really love to just have sort of intimate, close conversations about difficult topics. Like, <laughs> they do on this one, though. Yeah. I, I, so, the, the piece that I, I'm curious about, so, I, I, you're right, there's been a lot of work on this over time. A lot of it, to me at least, as an outsider, has seemed to be more from the... I guess you would say like a libertarian almost kind of point of view, the freedom and like why should the government be in the business of regulating this particular type of drug if we allow other kinds of drugs. And it feels like the conversation is different now, and maybe that's still part of it, but there's a a much larger emphasis on aspects of how the policy has affected racial justice and these kinds of things. So can you maybe how that has evolved or like what the conversation is now? Yeah, I think that there is a widespread acknowledgement that we're seeing across groups that prohibition is a failure. It has been a failure. It continues to be a failure. It has failed in accomplishing every single public policy goal that it has had. And people are seeing in other states that have legalized, they're seeing things like adolescent usage dropping. They're seeing things like rates of opioid deaths dropping. They're seeing that a well-regulated system of legalization creates better outcomes and allows you know, responsible adults to use a product that is objectively safer than alcohol or nicotine and other things that we've been allowed to use you know, for a long time. Do we know that it's objectively safer? Yes. Because, I mean, and I, I just... <laughs> it's a fair, it's fair. It's, I ask because some of the pushback that I've heard on this is just, um, uh, even people, not, they're almost agnostic about it, where they just say, well, it hasn't been legal, and so we haven't even really studied a lot of the aspects of it in different ways. And so we just, we don't know uh, what some of it is. People have been using marijuana no, but legally, not here. illegally, wherever. We have a ton of longitudinal data to know whether it's safer or not. I mean, the number of people that die every year as a result of alcohol all different types of alcohol-related deaths, be they, you know, on the road, be it uh, health impacts of alcohol, whatever it may be, it's, it just far out exceeds. You would have to smoke something like 1,500 tons of marijuana in 15 minutes for it to even approach <laughs> lethality. No one has ever died of a of a Is that a challenge? Can we go the the political piece? I'm, so the the conversation and the grassroots, the activism, uh, is focusing on uh, some of these other pieces. And I know that the 
the one of the big arguments, particularly here in the Twin Cities area, we hear pretty regularly is about the huge disparities between people of color who are uh, picked up for uh, marijuana possession in particular. I think it's something like eight times as many of you are uh, African-American in particular as opposed to a white person. You're eight times more likely to end up being prosecuted for having marijuana, even though usage rates are the same across those two groups of people. And I'm wondering, is that the piece from a political side that is sort of changing, that it becomes more feasible in the, the legislative realm? I, I think so. I mean, the, p- people agree, and, and I talked to colleagues on, on, on the Republican side, and, and they mostly agree. Can we just decriminalize it? Well, you can. I mean, there's bills and legislation for that, and we have, to a certain extent, done that when it comes to um, possession of, of illegal substances, but you're still not addressing the fundamental issue, which is education. Like, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's good for you. Uh, but if you have a framework of education, you can avoid... I mean, a, the biggest arguments I've heard, um, you're just um, exposing more marijuana f- to young kids. Well, we want to make sure kids know that their brain is still developing until the age 25, 27. Even psychiatrists are telling me, can you just do the bill for age 25 and older? And I'm like, well, you know, we have alcohol. I mean, these, these ages are very um, What would have been the random. age? What was the age in your bill? It was 21. 21. Because that's the legal age for drinking, and now we're moving um, tobacco to that. So that seems like it's arbitrary, because where did 21 come from? But um, when you talk to doctors, um, they they really are concerned about brain development, and we have to address that. I think that's why having a legal framework, and that's how I'm talking to my colleagues, you want to be able to talk to people. Um, Obstetricians and and, and gynecologists want to talk to their doctor, their patients who are pregnant, to make sure they're not smoking while they're pregnant, because that go to their fetus so um, we do that for alcohol we do that for us other substances but you can't because people are it's a stigma that this, mm. this is illegal and we can't um have that frank conversation with our can providers. we can we separate the <clears throat> the difference between decriminalization and legalization just to because they're different so can help me understand what is what are the two versions there? So it's they're different, but it's all together. I mean, it's your. T- I mean, a lot of. I have a friend of mine who's a colleague in the center who was trying to do the decriminalization bill. She said, "I couldn't get the the language and everything to work with legal counsel. We ended up legalizing. I mean, so you, it does go hand in hand. If you're gonna um, decriminalize and expunge records, meaning that people who have prior convictions are now clear from them so they're able to get housing and able to get jobs again because of the stigma that goes along with having these convictions that have really ruined people's lives. Um, you can't really just isolate the two and frankly I think we do a disservice if we piecemeal it. It's about time that we talk about um, what a responsible framework is and what it's not. In other states we can learn from them. Not everyone has done a great job and I think... Um, Ooh, who's not done a great job? <laughs> Um, Oregon comes to mind because they, 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 they have an excess problem. So they, I get the argument that you're, the, the black market's going to thrive. Well, you have states like Washington has a different framework. They actually have licenses for, for different canopy size, which means I'm learning a lot about this stuff, um, which means how much you can actually be licensed to grow, um, and they have restrictions on how much they can grow. Oregon was a lot more loose, and, and they have too much product. So the, the, the whole issue of excess. Um, But in Washington, even though they even have the highest tax rate, their black market has gone down by tenfold. Uh, And and talking to economists that are doing research with the data that's available, they say that you haven't even uh, maximized the tax rate. I'm not saying we should go that high, even though I put it in the bill. But um, 
we just have to have that conversation, how to do it responsibly and how to figure out what the demand in Minnesota would be. And it's not about the tax dollars. I think the tax dollars should be used to uh, fund uh, recovery and addiction and, and all of those uh, mental health and, and other areas that we fail to fund because our money right now is going to people selling in the illegal market. It's not going back to um, money that could be used for those areas and to teach people the, the risk about um, using or overusing uh, cannabis. So th- it seems like there's a fundamental question at the heart of some of this, which is uh, – is uh, maybe this is, but is smoking marijuana good for some people? I mean, there there is a, a medical. I mean, you have a medical yeah. program in Minnesota for a reason. There has been links to help with um, anxiety, PTSD. There's a veterans program as well. Um, our program in Minnesota is probably one of the most restrictive in the country, if not the most restrictive. Um, it just limits the access for patients to have it. So only those who can really afford it, um, because there's not a lot of competition. We only have two manufacturers that are virtually integrated, meaning that they can they have to grow it and they can sell it. They do the whole process. Um, only two companies can do the entire thing and sell it in, in very um, constrained parts of the state, and, and it's heavily regulated, but it, it means that it's more expensive, and, and we, can't, um, we can't use flour to, to, uh, to... You can't smoke it. Right now it's done by oils, right. and it's the most expensive processing. Um, so, but that's for the medical side of it. I, am, I mean... So there is an argument that it's good for you. There, well, there's a, in moderation. In certain, is that the argument in terms of the legalization more generally, that it's, that it's good? No, I don't think anyone's making the argument that we should legalize because of the public health benefits of using cannabis over not using it, but there is certainly a public health benefit from legalization over prohibition. For one, people often, you know, you hear this gateway theory of marijuana, right? Like if you start using marijuana, then you're going to go out and start, you know, smoking meth and whatever else. Well, I mean, that largely comes actually because of the criminalized nature of the substance. You go to your drug dealer to buy marijuana, and he says, oh, I've got this other thing. I mean, if you're going into a dispensary, that's not happening. And that's a a, a dynamic that has been demonstrated as being the case. The other thing is that if you're not buying on a regulated market, you don't know what it is that you are getting. In a regulated market, you know what the product is, you know what the dosage is, you know how it has been manufactured, it's kept in particular ways, and you have people with a a level of training and licensure that are dispensing it to you. So overall, you have that public health benefit, not to mention, you know, all the ones that come with making sure that your roadways are safer, that underage people aren't getting access, all of that. So that... that uh, the criminality kind of correlation causation piece is really interesting because uh, one of the pieces that got a lot of uh, discussion and it was probably very purposely timed to come out when this conversation was happening, the, there's a big U of M study about uh, marijuana use. Uh, no, you didn't like that study? That, no. it, it's, it's a disservice to studies to call that thing a study. I mean... <laughs> And okay. I say that as former research faculty at the Yeah, university. no, this is good. Uh, so let, let me put it out. You can, knock, you can destroy the survey. Uh, I hope so, the authors are not here. Yeah, uh, we, uh, so it was a, it was a study of 10,000-plus uh, uh, U of M students, and uh, they tracked a variety of different things, and they claimed to, to show uh, that, you know, uh, grade point averages for males, if you use cannabis regularly, drop from 3.33 to 3.01. For females, drop from 3.4 to 3.18, which just proves females are smarter generally uh, on <laughs> marijuana or not. Um, 
but then there were also a, a, a series of like much more sort of, I think that's, that's sort of a thing probably, uh, I think, folks kind of assumed maybe or like regular marijuana use might impact their grade point average. But they also drew like some correlations between uh, much more or weekly or more use of marijuana led to, you know, you were three times more likely to end up with a, a sexual disease. You are twice as more likely to end up being the uh, victim of sexual assault. And so I guess is there a is there a causation correlation problem here, or is that just bunk science? Or what? Do you, how do you respond to that? There were a lot of things wrong with the way they reported out the findings of that study. The findings of that study, if you read deeper into what the questions that they were asked, they found things like students were more likely to use marijuana if they were experiencing mental health crisis that they didn't have intervention for. Students were more likely to use marijuana if they lacked stable housing or transportation options. So things that we know already are going to have an impact on a student's ability to thrive. Uh, Certainly, we will see an increase in the use of marijuana because, you know, yeah, I mean, people use it as a way to self-medicate, as all sorts of different things. But it doesn't, you know, that that shows that there are underlying problems that impact people's grades that also impact their use of marijuana. And then the stuff about, and, you know, uh, using marijuana increases your your you know chances. So does wearing a skirt. So does being a woman who smiles. So does being a woman who doesn't smile. Who does you know? This is like the predicate for some really problematic kind of victim blaming science. Are you that statistics is bullshit? <laughs> As someone who's taught risk analysis at the Humphrey School, yes. I wish that would have saved me two years of grad school. Um, <laughs> It's fine. Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to open up for the audience to ask lots more questions in the second half. I do want to kind of talk through uh, the story of uh, the bill that you had this term and, like, what happened at the legislature because you were uh, organizing around this or whatnot. I, I mentioned backstage, it really felt like for the first two weeks of the legislative session this year, all anybody was talking about was, oh, is Minnesota going to legalize marijuana? Like, oh, that would be that would be progressively exciting somehow. That would be, like, different. Um, so how was that uh, from, like, being in it? Like, you were the, you had the it bill, like, the thing. Well, well the interesting thing was um, I'm in the minority in the Senate, so we thought the House was going to get more of a traction on this issue because they can control the agenda. I was actually surprised we got a hearing in the Senate um, from the Republicans, which is fine. We're, you know, we had that going. Um, but it's, you know, I've said this. This is not my re-election bill. This is not my top priority. I just think we are ready to have the conversation. People say, you've already made up your mind. Well, I've made up my mind that I, that I can read the tea leaves. It's going to happen whether we want to acknowledge it or not eventually. The federal government just legalized um, uh, hemp, so industrial hemp, and, and people, most people don't even know the difference between a hemp plant and a marijuana plant. There is a difference. Um, and, and so I just think, you know, it's, it's common sense to just have these discussions and, and start getting real information because statistics, you can manipulate numbers to say one thing or the other. There's tons of research on both ends. It's, it's trying to figure out what is the most prudent information that we can make, um, uh, you know, responsible decision-making, policy-making. I'm not saying it's perfect, but, you know, people say, oh, you're just 
um, allowing more people to drive impaired. It's already illegal, and it will not change with legalization. You cannot drive impaired with your opioid prescription, with marijuana, with meth, with anything. If you're too tired and you're driving impaired, you will go to jail. So it's, we're not changing that. So it's just t- trying to take the, the stigma and, and the perceptions and just talk about real data, but also be objective of what the information we put forth. Well, I'm curious like how this actually plays out, though, in the legislature, because is it that... I imagine that there's probably a mix. There's some folks who are like, no, I'm totally against this. Are there some people who are like, listen, I'm cool. I'm for this. But I'm not, I can't, I can't. My parents like come to the legislature sometimes. So uh, I can't like do it that way. But I don't know. I'm curious. I get, like, I get all the time. I'm with you. I, I agree. But I can't vote for it. <laughs> Why? What do they say about that? It, it's just. It's, we're not people. Are, need to be, I think, educated, like all of us, including me and policymakers. We're not there yet. I think it's going to take time. Having a task force. I mean, this is not an issue that's on the forefront of legislating right now. We're trying to put together a budget for the state. You know, legalizing marijuana isn't like the number one thing to do right now. And that's why we started our campaign was this recognition that. Uh, you know, there are large portions of the state, many communities in the state that we do need to have those conversations. People have concerns. They have legitimate mm-hmm. concerns uh, that that it is not right to just outright dismiss them. Uh, and so we formed our campaign uh, with the idea of not just doing work at the legislature, which we are, including, you know, working with legislators and getting them educated on the issues, but also... Uh, we're doing, you know, listening sessions and community events all around the state with all different types of affinity groups. And it's not all just us coming in and lecturing them on what's right or what's wrong. A large portion of it is listening to them tell us about the, the issues that affect their communities, what is their concerns about what marijuana legalization, the impacts could be. Because, I mean, the reality is that this is a very complex policy Area It has implications for health, for public safety, for law enforcement, for revenue, for all of these things. And, um, you know, you can legalize or you can legalize the right way and in a way that benefits all of our, our communities. And so, you know, that's a lot of the work that we're going to be doing uh, from now through through whatever is legal. Can I just I, and uh, we do it, but I am curious. What are you hearing like when you do some of these things like from sort of regular folks who show up? Um, we're finding that a lot of it is just combating the kind of stigma that people, you know, when you start talking to them, they're like, well, yeah, I guess I have kind of thought marijuana's bad because, like, bad stoner people do marijuana. And then when you start, you know, kind Good of asking stoner them. stoner people do, too. Well, yeah. when you start kind of asking them, you know, um, uh, what does victory for, for the, you know, war on drugs look like? And are we any closer to achieving it? Or you ask them, you know, talk with your kids and ask them, is it easier mm-hmm. for them to get alcohol or is it easier for them to get marijuana? And they even think back to the times that they were in college. I mean, if I think about when, you know, I was under 21 in college, it was easier to get weed than to get alcohol, you know. And they start kind of looking at these questions, then people's frames begin to kind of shift. It's also been important for us to bring in a real wide swath of people uh, that are advocating for legalization so people can see that it really is a diverse range of, of organizations that are pushing for this, that um, you know, there's no, no one face of the person who supports legalization, that people are doing it for all, all different kinds of reasons. So we've been having really great conversations with people. There are parts of the state 
certainly where economic opportunities have become particularly difficult, where the hemp debate has become something that's sort of re-energized opportunities for new economic development. And so they're also looking at marijuana as being something of interest. And then certainly we have to have a lot of upfront communications and conversations with our communities of color because we want to make sure that uh, when we legalize, it's not uh, something that, you know, the benefits just go to a few white-owned corporate entities, but it's something that reinvests back into those communities that have been the hardest to hit through criminalization. Oh, that is, that is a, I, I pro- yes, that is a vein I promise we will, uh, we will pick back up in the second half of the show and we will ask more about that. But for right now, we have to turn the stage over to the cast. But first, can you all help me do a big round of applause for these... All right. Oh, okay. Everyone can keep talking forever. Uh, that's good, though. Uh, so, well, if you have a question, please raise your hand. I will come towards you at the microphone in a non-threatening manner, and I will also give you a sticker uh, to reward you for a wonderful question. All right. Who has a question? And I will come into the audience. Oh, right in the front. How convenient. Have a sticker. So well-dressed. Okay. There you go. All right. I'm uh, Johnny. Oh. Yeah, great, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering if and when it does become legal, where is Big Pharma in the picture? Oh, that's a great question. Who actually? And this is maybe a good segue into you were in the as we were ending the first half, sort of talking about okay, if we legalize it, how do we make sure that it is benefiting communities that maybe have been negatively impacted previously? So maybe to his point first, is pharma is big business piece of that picture, or is there a different way to do some of that? Well, right now, pharma is one of the top three interest groups that is spending the most money against legalization. So the big three are alcohol, big pharma, and private prisons. Oh. And of itself should tell you something. And... And, um, I mean, in terms of what the role of Big Pharma will be, I mean, that's the reason that they're concerned about it. Right now, marijuana continues to be illegal federally, which means that, you know, even if it's legalized at the state level, even for medical purposes, this is not the kind of thing that big pharmaceutical companies are going to be able to, like, take through the FDA and get as approved products that way. So uh, I'm not sure they see much of a role for themselves, and nor do I. Well, I'm not going to speculate, but I've heard rumors of other companies that are that are kind of exploring Canada, which is Canada is uh, legal as it's legalized in the entire country, so they're going there, experimenting, coming back. But when it comes to CBD, which is um, part of derivative of uh, of uh, marijuana. Um, which is legal. Um, you can get lotions and salves and all this stuff that's already legal in, in the market. Um, companies are already spending money on that. That's there's there was a report I think even in Minnesota just opened a, a store in Minneapolis. Um, so that's a big business. So you would expect, um, you know, the beauty supplies and, and and maybe even big pharma to to jump into that market. So that's not speculative. That's what they're kind of going into. And if you go to other places like that are legal, you, you already have um, a lot of those products in the medical, but also in the recreational side. Uh, Lately, you were saying, uh, again, before we ended the first half, about wanting to try and structure it in a way where it would benefit communities. And so, 
And what does that even mean, or what does that look like? That's a pretty, like, substantively large question, and it's something that our group is helping to facilitate conversations around. Um, like Senator Franzen was saying, we know from other states that there have been models that work better than others, depending on what the outcomes are that you're looking for. So one of the things we're doing is beginning to bring in experts from other states and then convene policymakers at the local level, state level, to really begin looking at, you know, when you're looking at... Uh, your, how you're structuring your licensure for uh, distribution or for retail or for uh, manufacturing, what's kind of the different balances that you can have and then what does that look like in terms of, of outcomes? I mean, in terms of really wanting to make sure that we're putting reinvestments back into communities that have been hardest hit, a lot of that requires that our legislation allow for the maintenance of some level of local control so that those municipalities that have those large populations that have been the most adversely impacted, like Minneapolis or St. Paul, have the ability to structure, say, the way they issue uh, business licenses or the way they structure even their zoning permits are ones that allow for these businesses to be put into uh, communities of color, maybe even with some preferential treatment towards granting licenses to those communities. Um, and then another dimension of it has to do with how the financing is done for these businesses. This is something that we've been learning and having these conversations with people from other states is that in other states we've seen um, some pretty unethical lending practices that have entered those states, especially since, you know, you can't – it's hard to get a loan from a bank to do this. This is illegal federally, and so you've had kind of local – investing institutions that grow in these states that where it's become legalized, um, and especially in communities of color where you have people that you know, don't have a record history or, or a, a credit history, or uh, uh, investors are likely to see it as a higher risk investment. We've seen some pretty predatory lending happening, yeah. and that's something the government is going to have to really address up front. So, okay, I, I want to get more questions. I, I'm going to come over there, and then I'm going to go up into the house. I'll just say as I'm walking over here, I, I, we were at a, a conference event in Colorado, and there was somebody who owned a dispensary there, and he told a story about the fact that uh, he could not get a loan from a bank. Literally, the president of the bank was a customer of his and would not give him a loan uh, for a lot of these same reasons. So, Hi, I'm Bahia. Um, so my question is sort of personal. My older brother, um, he lives in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and he grows his own marijuana. He sells it. He has a customer base, uh, but he's tired of hiding. So he's planning to, move in, to planning to move out to Colorado so he can create his own business, but he's worried about his current customers back in Wisconsin, thinking that once he leaves, um, they might go to other dealers that might not have the most healthy marijuana to offer because there's a market of spiked marijuana to the point where there's a lot of toxins going into the material where it could heavily affect just the health of the customer base, and he's worried about that. Has that been a concern that's been brought up, even at the legislative level, of getting marijuana that might not be the healthiest, that might be actually more toxic to you? 
Yeah, and, and that's a great question because that's actually one of the talking points I use is like we don't know what is in the substances that are being sold today. There might be good growers, but there's certainly cases where um, these products could be laced with something that could be really um, adverse to, to the human body. So, for instance, in our, um, in our hearing um, that we had where Bill died, um, we had an ER uh, doctor who, who was our first, one of our first testifiers who said he will never see anyone with an overdose of marijuana in, in, in the ER. That just will medically never happen. He will never see that because it just wouldn't be, it doesn't occur unless, of course, someone's laced. With, um, with some other products, and, and, and that has been known that that is a, a big threat. So there is the argument to be said that if we have a regula- regulatory scheme, um, that we are able to um, put funding to, to police it, basically, um, to make sure that we are able to license it, that we're able to inspect, that we're able to test um, that's another thing um, that Oregon has not done the greatest, and I don't want to pick on Oregon because, um, you know, they, but I did. Um, in my preliminary research, Oregon hasn't done a great job on, on putting the funding that comes from taxation to actually um, police it in terms, and I don't mean police like regulatory, um, uh, like police officers, but basically to, to test it and to make sure that, um, that you have regular inspections to these facilities to that point. Okay, there were some hands up in the house, so I'm going to, okay, I'm going to come up this way, and then I'll go back around that way. Hi, this is Bruce. I was just wondering, in a survey of street product in the, uh, say, Minnesota or the Twin Cities area, what uh, intoxicants or contaminants have been found? I'm not aware of a particular Minnesota study. I know that from anecdotes and from other um, states that you read, um, um, and again, Oregon, um, um, huh. you can have pesticides that you're not um, testing for that you should be. You can have fungus because you're not properly storing it or not properly ma- um, handling the product. So things like that could actually have a really bad adverse effect um, on people. Um, so that's why you want to have quality standards and have something like, like a pharmaceutical, like you're going to Walgreens and buying um, your prescription drugs. Similar to that, that you can be, um, that you can trust that you know what's on the label. And the other piece, too, is potency, um, which hasn't really been mentioned um, as much. But that is a big, um, it's a pro and a con. People say, oh, my gosh, the, the, the marijuana today is not the same in the 60s. Well, I don't know. I wasn't born in the 60s. But, um, but what I can hear. That's um, a different, if you had been born in the 60s, though. <laughs> but if but... you have, apparently it's not, we can, we can, we can manipulate it so it's, it's a lot higher potency. Well, wouldn't you want to know what you're putting in your body right now and you have a label that says, like you have for your beer, um, the alcohol per volume, that you know how much you're putting in your body and that you can figure out what what works best for you and that you actually um, have um, some sort of limit of what you sell so you're not putting like moonshine, right? That's illegal. But uh, to, to kind of that comparison with alcohol, we regulate alcohol in every way, shape, or form. Um, this would be a very similar um, example of how we would regulate cannabis. Okay. There is- so what will it take for this to get through the legislative body, and why, why has it failed in Minnesota and been so successful in other states? My, my first reaction is um, we have to work with law enforcement. Right now, law enforcement was really, really adamantly opposed to it because 
when you talk to them, and my dad was a pop, I'm not talking against um, law enforcement, they have legitimate concerns about having one more thing that they have to do to police, and here I'm using the, the word in, in, in the right context, um, they have to enforce, and you know, right now we're having a really hard time recruiting police officers, and and we want to make sure people are safe. But now we're diverting people from the hard drugs that they're, whether it's meth and cocaine and heroin, and now we have cannabis. Right now, mar- marijuana is not their top priority because they know it's not as harmful. But but if we legalize it, that's one more thing they have to put a lot of resources to, especially with this perception that people are going to drive why high. Well, actually, our bill would. Make what criminalize that you you can't smoke while you're driving because you don't want to be impaired. So we have some some concerns there. Obviously, we share those concerns. So if we're going to legalize, how can we uh, work with law enforcement so that we um, make sure they have the tools and the resources? The other part too is that they don't have a test um, like we do for um, for alcohol for um, a breathalyzer. There's not a similar comparison for um, marijuana right now. Um, because it's been illegal. So the technology is getting there. Um, I'm sure we will get there, um, whether it's um, saliva. Right now it's, it's by blood test, and it's a little bit more invasive, especially when you think about Minnesota, and, and people are really concerned about their privacy, and I agree. Um, so we'll get there when it comes to that testing. Once we get ability to um, detect and, and, and give the law enforcement community the tools they need and educate, that's why I think that has to be a huge part of it. If this ever happens, education needs to be at its core. And, and, and prevention, because, again, because it's legal doesn't mean it's good for little kids, right? And, and there's concerns about your, your cat eating an edible at home and your kid thinking it's a, it's a gummy bear and they're eating, um, you know, something that could be um, with marijuana. So all those concerns are valid. We just have to address them. Uh, let me add to this because I think there's, there's an additional important dimension of this that everyone should know. In... Basically, every other state that has legalized, they've done it by ballot initiative, meaning they've put it on the ballot and the people have voted. And we know even in Minnesota, majority of people support legalization. In Minnesota, we don't have that same mechanism that other states do for a ballot initiative, which means in this state, it's going to get legalized either uh, through legislation or through a constitutional amendment, which still requires that it go through the legislative process the same way as if we were to legislate. It's one thing asking people to show up and vote uh, to legalize. That's kind of a lighter political lift than trying to motivate enough people to reach out to their legislators and lobby them to support legalization. It's a very different ask, and so for... Uh, the, the decision calculus for, for the policymakers is different, right? If it ends up on the ballot, it's sort of like, well, we're ready, letting the public decide. If you as a legislator need to take a stand, and in this state we've become so much a suburban state uh, and, and we're so much of a purple state uh, that, that you really see there's a very different type of political pressure that needs to be put on them that in other places they haven't done. As a result, we haven't seen a lot of the national organizations that go from state to state and kind of mount legalization operations come to Minnesota. Quite frankly, we reached out to them early on, and they said it's too hard there. We're not interested. There's lower-hanging fruit. We said, okay, fine, we're going to do it ourselves, and we're doing that work. But it's just it's an aberration from the way it usually is done in, in other states. That's interesting. Okay, there were definitely more hands uh, but did okay. I'm I'm not going back that way then. Uh, okay, I, I got I'm gonna go up to this person. Uh, here we go. Yeah. Um, I have a kind of a two part question, and uh, to take this back to the legal realm, I want to know what 
the state legislation is doing to support the emerging hemp economy and what um, is happening behind the scenes to make sure um, that marginalized communities can benefit from that. And the second part of my question is, um, and to follow up on this woman's question, what can we do as citizens to further this? Uh, we, you know, we've asked what, what is happening in legislation, but what can citizens do on the ground to further these things? So, uh, yeah, the first part is what's going on with the hemp industry and how much support is there in-house for that? Well, well the hemp um, piece just got federally legalized this recently. So um, there is already um, some industrialized hemp in Minnesota. And actually, it's funny you say that because I've been trying to rally the troops for this interim. This is the next tour is going to visit hemp farms around Minnesota because they are there. And it's to educate people. And they're in Republican districts more likely than Democratic districts. So we want to be able to have the conversation because it's a huge industry that's growing. And Minnesota should have its part. You know, you make a lot more money from uh, hemp farms than you would do for corn. I'm not trying to compete, but that's just the fact of the of the return on investment. So if it's already illegal federally, let's make sure that we um, that we're able to get our farmers to um, benefit from that. And in any case, um, especially with the trade wars with other um, countries when it comes to soybeans and so forth, there's something that we can probably um, take a lead on. Um, But there's, you know, some. Again, some Republicans are fine with hemp because they're, it's in their district. So um, we're trying to educate more, and educate becomes a theme because we do. We have to say, you know, people sometimes have the confusion between hemp and marijuana. They're cousins in my book, um, and they really are, frankly. So how do we um, promote that in terms of this is happening here, it's going well, we're regulating it. But um, there's people who are still, some legislators who are still reluctant and have a concern about hemp. So it's just getting them comfortable with um, how that works and um, how the state has a, a mechanism to to be responsible of, of, of all what, it, you know, CBD is, is something that's, again, more normalized. So, you know, we had this fight a few years ago. When I first got elected in 2012, Sunday liquor sales was something that we were never think would happen. Um, and it is alcohol and it's a vice, but we legalized and we made it easier to get your liquor and get intoxicated. Um, this is, you know, it's true, and, and that was a big political fight. Some Republicans did not vote for that um, on, on whatever grounds, but um, it ended up passing. You know, it took a few years, um, but it did. Um, so I think people just got comfortable, and the public demanded it. It's like, get it done. We're tired of talking about Sunday liquor sales. Just get it done. I think, you know, it's a time where people just feel more comfortable with the subject matter, and since it's been such a taboo. I mean, I grew up in Puerto Rico. Liquor um, drinking age was 18, so it wasn't a taboo for me growing up. Um, and, and marijuana wasn't a taboo, but I never cared for it, but it wasn't a taboo. It is here, and we just have to start talking about the real facts. The citizen piece of, you know, just like Sunday liquor sales, I think people will educate us. And I've had the entire gamut of calls from your disgrace to Edina to yay for doing this. Finally, someone's taking the stance. You know, I'm, I'm a policymaker. It's, again, it's not my, I'm not going to follow my sword on this, but I just think we can have an educated and a respectful conversation about this issue because it's happening across our state and we're not going to get rid of marijuana. It's not going to go away. So in my book, my two- and three-year-old, I'd rather them know what they're putting in their bodies when they're adults because they're going to try it. And I want to resp- teach them to be responsible and to know that they only get one brain but that they know the consequences and, and that we put the information out there and we keep it safe rather than on the streets. 
In terms of what you can do to help, I mean, we need help in all kinds of capacity with our campaign. We are a people-powered campaign. We are a citizen-led campaign. We actually, when we decided to start the campaign, the first thing we did was we went to the Historical Society and we pulled out all the boxes of organizing documents that Minnesotans United for All Families had put together from their campaign, and that's an amazing resource that they've made available to others that want to do grassroots campaigns around issues where there is stigma and there's a need to have conversations in the community. So we need people of all kinds, all different persuasions that come from all different kinds of affinity groups and interest groups. Uh, if you reach out to us, uh, uh, we'll set you up with the kind of materials you need to have uh, uh, house parties or, or host events with your own, be it your church or your, a club that you're a member of or your book club or whatever it may be. Um, everything from that all the way to, you know, this summer we're going to be doing a lot of work statewide that we'll need help with. We always need people helping us out at the Capitol when there are key, you know, bills that come up and we need to show support. So anyone who's interested in helping us, if you go to our website, it's mnisready.org. Uh, you'll see that we have a volunteer sign-up form and, and we would love your assistance. Could, did you... No, we're done. Okay, good. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so uh, that's usually where I end. But so I, I, in terms of what can people do, but I'll ask this instead. Like, um, speculate wildly. What? Uh, when? When does this happen? Is it like Sunday liquor sales, where our children will someday be able to uh, fight this out with the Teamsters, or is it? Um, story. Yeah, is there? Is it something? Uh, or is it more likely than that? We think it's much more likely than that. We think that we can, with enough hard work during the rest of this legislative session over the summer and in the fall, get a legalization bill passed next session. And if we don't, it will become an electoral issue, and we are a C4, so we will avail ourselves of that opportunity. What, is that, can you just, what does that look like? What that means is the same as other advocacy organizations that look at the way legislators have voted and come up with scorecards and rank those those votes and then, you know, go out and 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 make sure that you know candidates that are supportive or the ones that end up in office will do that kind of work. We'll uh, uh, recruit the candidates that we need to and we know that, you know, in this state it's an important one. We have two single issue political parties that are dedicated to just marijuana legalization that have met the threshold for being major political parties in this state. So any political party that is not thinking that this is an important electoral issue is really uh, uh, making a mistake. Well, and I, I will add um, that it's not necessarily a partisan issue. I, um, today we just voted off the Senate floor a very important bill on opiate stewardship. And um, next door, next to me was uh, Senator Eaton, who today is her 35th, um, the 35th birthday would have been of her daughter, who passed away from opiate overdose. And it's really hard to convince a Democrat who's gone through that story, who sees anything that's going to be um, intoxicating, hurtful, and addictive as a negative thing for, for anyone. Um, and I respect that. And I'm not trying to change her mind, because I don't think, frankly, I'll ever will. Um, if she wants to eventually vote for it because she feels more comfortable, that we have a responsible framework, that's a different story. Um, but you have to be sensitive where people are coming from, that not everyone, just because they're Democrats, are going to vote for legalization, not just because they're Republican, they're going to vote for hemp um, because it's um, good for their districts. Um, so it's a little bit nuanced, uh, but getting people comfortable with talking about what their perceptions are and how we can educate them on the reality and how um, it's kind of sort of getting normalized, even though they don't want to ag agree or accept it. 
Um, so it might take a longer stance. Um, it might take changing the majority so you actually get hearings on the bills and actually move it through committee so we make the right choices of what that bill looks like. Because just because we say legalization doesn't mean we can flip a, a switch. It's really complex, and we can get it really wrong. And I frankly can't vote for something that I think will be bad for Minnesota. So at the end of the day, it needs to take the best and the brightest ideas and the best practices from the entire country and do the best we can do so we can continue to be a model for other states and not Oregon. <laughs> On that last dig in Oregon, can we do a big round of applause? I think Harry. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.